Well, I would like to offer my welcome to you as well, uh, you in the room and you online on this uh, such an important day, such an important weekend in the life of our uh, church students. It is great to see you representing uh, with these amazing shirts, and I'm so grateful for you. Uh, uh, Some of you guys may know I'm on the board of Mission Arlington, where you were yesterday, and my friend Jim Bergen. Uh, son of Tilly Bergen, uh, sent me this uh, text last night. He said, I want you to know that we had a wonderful time with your students and staff today. What a blessing they were to us and to so many people in need. They have great hearts and great spirits. So thanks so much. Thanks for not getting me kicked off the board. Uh, I'm really appreciative of that. Uh, So appreciative of you. Uh, It's also a significant day. We're closing out this mulligan series. Uh, In golf, a mulligan is a do-over. And I've shared with you as a congregation that, uh, uh, that I wish I had a mulligan on preparing you and me for the pandemic, for the challenges of these last couple of years. And, and it was about a year ago that I sort of rediscovered this beautiful prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, that, that passage, that prayer that our children read so beautifully on the video. And I found it to not only be an amazing prayer, but, but also uh, a powerful critique, if you will, or diagnosis of what is wrong with so many contemporary expressions of Christianity. For example, that first verse, verse 11, talks about the importance of prayer. Are we, you know, a people of prayer? That second verse talks about love, love for the body of Christ and love for everyone, loving our neighbors as ourselves. And then the third verse, the one that we come to today, maybe the one that that struck me the most uh, when it came to preparing uh, for, or, or maybe not being prepared for the pandemic, and that is the topic of endurance. You know, as I think about it, our culture specializes in convenience, right? Not endurance. Our culture specializes, if you will, in uh, it's kind of like a personal trainer that, that takes weight off the barbell uh, or a personal trainer that reduces the number of reps, uh, a personal trainer that slows down the, the treadmill. Uh, and yet the Bible talks about growing, growing in strength, growing in holiness, growing in perseverance, growing in endurance. It's been a, it's been a, a little while ago now, uh, quite a long while, uh, but the, uh, when I turned 50, I decided that I wanted to defy my advancing age by participating in a half marathon. Now, before you even sound mildly impressed, uh, let me tell you that due to poor knees, I, I walked the whole way, start to finish. Uh, uh, but still, it gave me, and I don't mean like this, by the way, but, uh, but still, it, it gave me some perspective on what it's like to do a somewhat long distance race. And one of the things that I remember about it is how much excitement and nervous energy there was at the start of the race. In fact, because I was walking, you know, I I made my way to the back of this mob of people that was trying to get as close as possible to the starting line. But 13 miles later, whether you walked or whether you ran or whether you ran, walk, ran, walk, ran, walk, it seemed like all that excitement And all that nervous energy had long since burned off. In fact, I looked through my email, and uh, here is a picture of me uh, somewhere near uh, mile 12, I believe. And uh, you see my knee brace, my Walkman, uh, and uh, that's a guy that'll flat run you over, right? That's a guy, or maybe I should say walk you over. Uh, But... uh, 
That, that, that's what it feels like toward the end. Toward the end, it kind of seems like mostly the thing that people are thinking about is, man, I just want to, I just want to finish, right? I think there's a truth of life in that experience. We can, we can surely take that picture down. Uh, I think there's a, a truth of life, and, and that is that most, thank you, most of us are better starters than we are finishers, right? But the Bible talks so much about the finish, the Bible talks so much about the end of the race, and if we're going to finish, what we need is endurance. And so as we've done each week, we're going to look at one verse, one verse, verse 13. Let's look at this verse. It says, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. You know, one of the amazing things about God's word is that you can gain so much wisdom from just a verse. Now, ideally, we don't study just a verse or just a verse outside of context, but there's so much for us, even in one verse of scripture. And I think this is certainly true of verse 13. And so what I want to do is I want to do something a bit unusual. I want to take this verse in reverse order. I don't mean like literally one's holy, his all with, but I want to take it kind of like in reverse order by sections, if you will. Uh, have I confused you yet? It'll make sense. I promise it'll make sense. But what I want to do is I, I want to begin with the ending of the verse. And the ending of verse 13 actually helps us, I believe, to anticipate the ending of life, right? to anticipate the ending to anticipate when life comes to an end. You see, when I trace my finger across this verse, when I come to the last 10 words, this is what I read. End of the verse says, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Paul is telling us an often neglected truth about this life, and that is our lives will come to an end. We may not like to think about it, but one day life as we know it will end. Uh, our lives and, and human history will end. In fact, the, this portion of the verse no, it does not begin with if, right? If our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. It, it, that, that phrase begins with the word when the Lord comes. One of the deepest truths, one of the most important truths of the Christian life is that Jesus is coming back. Now, the scholars I consulted weren't totally in agreement about what holy ones mean. Some said angels, some said Christians, uh, some said both. Both maybe makes the most sense to me in the, in the context. But, but, but one of the, the, the things that we can, we can all agree on is, first of all, there's, there's mystery, isn't there? Uh, there are things that we don't know about when Christ will come. Jesus says that, you know, no one knows the day or the hour. There's a lot of mystery about it. And in fact, when I was a kid, I don't think this is as true today, but when I was a kid growing up in church, the issue of Christ coming again or the second coming was fiercely debated. Uh, in fact, if, if you've ever heard theological terms bandied about like premillennial or post-millennial, or amillennial, or tribulation, or pre-tribulation, or, or rapture. Maybe, maybe you remember some of those debates as well. And I don't mean to, to, to trivialize these doctrinal discussions, but at the same time, I think that, that, that I don't want us to lose the main point that virtually all Bible-believing Christians agree upon, and that is the same Jesus who first came to this earth as a baby in Bethlehem will come again 
as a conquering king. And not just a conquering king, but also as our savior and as our judge. In other words, we believe that all people face a date with destiny. You could almost paraphrase this last part of verse 13 to say, ready or not, here he comes. Jesus is coming again, and so we anticipate the ending. You know, if you uh, were a student and you saw on the, the first day of class, you got your syllabus that lays out the semester and all of the important dates, and if you saw that on the last day of class there was going to be a final exam, and let's say the final exam was 50% of your grade, well, you would have some options, right? Uh, you could pray that was a typo. Uh, you could ignore the ending, you could pray that, that that day would never come, that, you know, you could pray that the professor changes her mind, or you could anticipate the ending and you could prepare for it. You could live practically each day readying yourself for that ultimate exam, that ultimate date with destiny. That date when the professor says, I want you to put your textbooks and your notebooks and your computers and your devices away because ready or not, here comes the final exam. I wonder, by the way, how many of us who years after we graduated would still dream about sleeping through the alarm and missing a final. Anybody had that dream before? Yes, yes. Well, in, in the Gospels, Jesus didn't use the final exam uh, image. Uh, he would often in his parables use the image of a master who goes uh, on, a, on a long trip but promises to return. And I'm kind of paraphrasing, but he would say, now in the meantime, while, I, while the master's gone on the trip, I'm going to post these things I want you to do on the refrigerator. And I expect you to do these things every day because you don't know which day I'll return. But when I come back, this is what I expect to see. The master's expectation, in other words, was that every day would be a day of serving because one day, ready or not, the day would come. First thing then is that we anticipate that ending. We think about it. We, we sing about it as we've done today. The, the one day the trump will resound, right? One day the trumpet will, will blast. One day uh, Jesus will come again. And anticipating that ending helps us to envision the ending. Now, what does that mean, envision the ending? Well, we not only anticipate that day when Christ comes to meet us or we go to meet Christ, but we envision ourselves on that day. We think about, we reflect on, we envision our readiness. And I realize anticipate and envision, uh, they're, they're practically synonyms, but let me, let me see if I can explain. I, I, when, when I say envision the ending, I mean envision what state do you want your heart and life to be when life as we know it comes to an end? Envision how prepared am I? If Jesus were to come back today, how prepared am I? Uh, what does my life look like? What do I want my life to look like? You know, Paul had a dream for the Thessalonians. And I think that that's the same dream for us. And it's in the middle of verse 13. It's so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father. Blameless and holy. Let's look at that word holy. Holiness is, a, is, a, is an attribute of God. To be holy is to be godly. Holiness literally means being set apart for God's service. And holy 
pairs well with blameless. Blameless does not mean sin, sinless, by the way. I've heard it compared to, uh, you know, if a child, you ask a child, uh, uh, a, a really long, young child who's just learning how to read, you ask them to spell dog, you know, and maybe the the D is turned the opposite, looks like a B or whatever, but, but they kind of have all the letters and, and uh, you know, it's not perfect, they're still growing, uh, but, but they're getting the concepts down, right? Uh, blameless and holy, not perfect, not sinless, but at the same time, there is a Godward bent to our lives. Right? Now, the, the New Testament speaks of holiness in several ways. It's a, it's a gift, you know, the, the, the Spirit gives us the gift of holiness, makes us Holy gives us the, the, the Spirit's fruit and plants desires in us that, that weren't there before, that, so that now we want to pray, we want to love, we want to serve, we want to please God. So, so holiness is a gift. It's also a goal. It's something that we are striving toward, as it is in this passage. And then ultimately, holiness is something that will, will be something that God does, and that God does completely, uh, because we will be like him when we see him face to face, as the scripture says. So, so, so holiness uh, is, is a, a crucial part of what it means to be a Christian. And, and I, and I want to make this point as well, that holiness is never separated from love. Because sometimes we put those two things in really different categories. In fact, many scholars believe verse 13 is just a continuation of verse 12. Verse 12 talks about love. And so love is one of the main ways we embody holiness. Love for God, love for others. Uh, that is a crucial part of holiness. I want to try to illustrate this. Let's say that you go over to a, uh, a, a Christian's home for dinner, and as soon as you walk into their home, they, um, they, they are careful to point out all the holy trappings of their home. Like they show you all the art, and all the art is Christian art. And, uh, and they want you to know all the music that will be played over the course of the evening is Christian music. And they point out all the books on their bookshelf, and they're all Christian books, and the hosts are quick to point out, you know, I've, you know, I've read that one three times, you know, and, and, and everything, right, just the whole ambiance is, 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 is kind of a visual display of holiness, pretty impressive, right? And then over dinner, your hosts, your Christian hosts, begin to basically talk bad about everybody. They let you know their neighbors are heathens. Uh, their church friends are inconsistent in their quiet times and in church attendance. And their pastor could stand to study a little more for his sermons. That could be true, by the way. Uh, but you get the idea, right? There's something negative to say about everybody. There's a looking down on everybody from a perch, a high perch of, uh, of holiness, so to speak. So let me ask you a question. Is that real holiness? I would say absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm not talking about the music, the art of the books. I'm talking about the behavior. I don't think that is holy behavior, right? Why? Because to be holy is to be loving. In fact, I think the New Testament has a word for that kind of behavior, and the word is Pharisee or Phariseeism. It's, it's, it's a... It's a, a uh, it's a, 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 a term, if you will, that focuses on polishing the outside of our lives while the inside of our lives are filled with pride and, and, and anger and all those kinds of things. And it's a, it's a term that, that, that focuses on looking down on others as opposed to serving and loving others. Right? Holiness, 
Like love is not proud and it's not mean, right? God is love and a godly, holy person is loving. So that's the vision, isn't it? When it's time for us to meet Christ and only God knows the timing, our lives, not sinless, are nevertheless ready. I think that's a wonderful vision, isn't it? That we are ready. But that brings us to the heart of this verse and I think the heart of this mulligan series. And, uh, and, and that is what do we do between now and the ending? And what we do between now and the ending is we endure the in-between. What we do between now and that ending is we practice a holy endurance. And here we get to those all-important five words that, that launch this verse. And to me, they describe a quality of endurance, and it is this. May he strengthen your hearts. May God strengthen, or maybe your translation says establish your heart. The idea, the biblical idea of the heart is not just kind of emotions, but, but your will, your soul, your, your whole being strengthened to keep on loving, to keep on seeking God in the midst of pain and suffering and evil in the world. May he strengthen your hearts. Can I ask you something? Is there a better prayer for 2022 than that? May God strengthen your heart? Last year, the, the writer Sarah Harrington noticed that the stock answer that people so often give to the question, how you doing? Uh, has changed during the pandemic, at least according to her experience, that in 2019 and before, uh, chances are, if you ask somebody, kind of small talk, hey, how you doing, uh, that the number one answer they would give you is busy, right? just so busy, oh yeah, busy, doing this, this, this. But, but, but she says in her experience, that answer has been replaced by a new number one answer in the pandemic, how are you doing, the number one answer is, exhausted, exhausted. She says that while people used to talk about compassion fatigue, they now talk about Zoom fatigue, just feeling the life force drain out of you as you're staring at all those faces on a computer screen for hours on end. When they talk about decision fatigue, too many choices, or, or Facebook fatigue, too, many, too much online noise, or mask fatigue, or social distancing fatigue, or just plain old fatigue. And, and I know for those of you who, uh, many of you who've had COVID, uh, you know a whole different aspect of fatigue, right? And for some of you, even a long haul kind of fatigue. Maybe that's why we're seeing in our nation a, a phenomenon I referenced a few weeks ago called the great resignation. People are just tired and they're, they're quitting their jobs or maybe they're quitting their commitments or they're, they're quitting their churches or they're just quitting in general. Friends, hear me on this, hear me. I in no way am trying to make light of fatigue. Fatigue is real. But if we're not careful, our fatigue will cause us to lose our spiritual strength. It'll cause us to lose our ability to endure, and we won't be able to honor God with our choices and our priorities and our relationships. That's why the Bible, I think, values endurance so highly, this ultimate spiritual readiness for those ready or not moments in life. You know, there's a, a scary exercise that I play sometimes as a pastor. I ask myself, what is it that our culture values highly that the Bible does not seem to value much at all. 
And then what is it that the Bible values highly that our culture doesn't seem to value at all? Like, for example, sometimes in our culture we value uh, how many followers we have on social media, how many downloads our podcasts get, right? And, and I know there was no social media in the Bible, so it's hard to make a direct comparison, but it does seem like Jesus uh, did not run toward popularity. It seems like he kind of ran away from popularity. But on the other hand, what's something that the Bible highly values that we tend not to? And I think one of those values in Scripture is endurance. It's perseverance. But the question for us is, do we value endurance? I remember early in my Christian life, I think I was a, a teenager, and I was uh, starting to uh, you know, read the Bible more for myself and not just compulsory Bible reading in, in church. And, and I can remember I came across this verse, a couple of verses in the very beginning of the book of James. I didn't know what to do with. Uh, the, the, James 1-2 was... was I started reading it, and I was like, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And I thought, ugh, you know, uh, who wants to rejoice when you're stuck in traffic or when the toilet overflows, you know, uh, you know count it all, joy, what? And I thought, that, you know, I'm just going to keep reading. It's got it's to get better. And so, uh, and so I kept reading, verse 3 says, to count it all joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces, drum roll, perseverance. And it was like, womp, womp, perseverance, you know. I, I, I want the testing of my faith to produce Samson-like strength, you know, or, or Solomon-like wisdom, or maybe charisma, or good looks, or something like that, right? I mean, the testing of your faith produces perseverance? Who, who wants that? Who values that? Well, friends, it turns out God values that. It turns out the Bible highly values endurance. Have you ever noticed that? Remember when the Apostle Paul was addressing his friends from Ephesus probably for the last time? And he said of his life, he says, I count my life as of no value. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has for me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight of faith. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 uh, instructs us to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Paul in Galatians 6 says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest, what? If we do not give up. <laughs> If we endure, do you hear it, friends? Over and over again in Scripture, the, the Bible values persevering. Now, I, I can almost hear some of you saying, Larry, it's not like I want to be fatigued. <laughs> I, I didn't ask to be fatigued. I am fatigued. And, and listen, I get it. I get it. And I'm, I'm not here to cast any judgment whatsoever on your exhaustion. Well, we, we pray for one another in the midst of exhaustion. But I am asking you to pay attention to the things the Bible tells us about exhaustion. Like, for example, regular Sabbath, regular rest. Or, or, or for example, waiting on the Lord. Isaiah 40, the one who waits on the Lord will renew their strength. Or as this scripture talks about in verse 13, to pray 
to, to pray for endurance, to pray that God would strengthen our hearts. And then there's another way the Bible focuses on building endurance, and that is in meditating on Jesus, reflecting on Jesus, reflecting on, on what Christ endured for us. In fact, back to Hebrews 12 again, Hebrews 12 verse 3 says, consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The author of Hebrews connects this meditation on Jesus with our own endurance, with our own fighting against weariness. And by the way, can I just say this, that, that, that one of the, the, the greatest ways I think that we strengthen our endurance is by doing life together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's one of the reasons why we, we talk about grow groups so much. I, I would have to believe over the last couple of years that our grow groups have, have, have played a pivotal role in helping you in the midst of your exhaustion. To know that these brothers and sisters are cheering you on they're giving you fuel, if you will, to continue the race, to continue to pursue the holiness and love that is not easy, but that God calls us to do. You know, on this Martin Luther King weekend, I, I love reflecting on the title of one of Dr. King's most memorable books. In fact, I recently listened to it on audio. It's, it's called Strength to Love. Isn't that a great title? Strength to love, the title itself is a, is a prayer, right? Um, Lord, give me spiritual strength to keep on loving others. And uh, in, in, in his sermon on, on loving your enemies, Dr. King tells us um, what we need to hear in, in every generation, and that is that hate cannot drive out hate. We think if we can just hate the hateful things in our culture and if we can hate them strongly enough that our hate will drive out the things that we hate. It doesn't work that way. Hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of destruction. And Dr. King, who was the target of so much hate, was determined to ask God for strength to love, for strength to keep on loving his enemies. He says, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering, think about um, you know, water hoses and those kinds of things on the Edmund Pettus uh, Bridge in Selma, we'll match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Not a masochist, not looking for suffering, but yet praying for faithfulness to endure suffering. He says, we shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, we will continue to love you. Soul force. I think that's strength of heart. I think that's strength to keep our commitments to God. I think that's strength to love God with all our lives and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Students, I know this has been a profound spiritual weekend for you. And I just want you to know I'm, I'm praying for an endurance, right? that you'll follow through on the commitments that you've made. It's, it's one thing to start the race, right? It's another thing to, to finish. And, and we're praying for you as a church. You know, endurance, keeping our promises to God is not nearly as appealing sometimes as achievement or success or wealth or acclaim or fame or comfort, at least not in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of God, endurance, perseverance is a beautiful thing. I would have to tell you that for me as a pastor, some of the most beautiful funerals I officiate 
are those whose lives have modeled endurance. I mean, I've done funerals where I've heard this story about a a seven-year-old child in a creek uh, proclaiming their faith to God, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and being baptized in a creek. And then 70 years later, with their dying breath, they're still proclaiming that same faith in Jesus. What a beautiful thing endurance is. What a vision of life, a vision of consistency, a life of holiness, a life of quiet, committed love day after day, a life that takes its promises and vows seriously, a life that draws strength from the one who for the joy set before him endured the pain, the agony of the cross, who carried our cross and now invites us to carry our crosses as well until one day we lay them down, until one day we will be with him, until one day we will be blameless and holy in his sight. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for, we plead for strength, of heart. Lord, we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with holy tenacity so that we might keep the promises that we've made to you and to one another. And Lord, we also ask for grace. So much grace, Lord, because there have been so many times where we've fallen short, so many times when we failed you. We thank you that you are the Lord of grace. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your blood that covers us. And we pray now, Lord, that you would strengthen us to endure. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.